This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. Today we have Ethereum founder and Ethcore CEO, Gavin Wood, and Head of Business Development at Ethcore, Ken Kaplan. We take a look at their parity client and the Web3 concept. We look at the future of Bitcoin Ethereum interoperation, Geth security flaws, Whisper, Swarm, the DAO, and even the possibility of sidechains on Ethereum. There was additional content cut into this episode, so it's a bit choppy, but altogether, this offers a fresh glimpse into the ever-changing future of Ethereum. Before we dive in though, this episode's sponsor, the enterprise blockchain solution provider BlockApps, has a request for the community. Hey, how's it going, Victor? Thanks for joining me on the uh, on the Ether Review. Could you tell us about BlockApps and what kind of participation you're asking from the community right now? Sure. Um, so what BlockApps is, we are a leading provider of blockchain technology for enterprises. And BlockApps is an Ethereum-based rapid deployment and development platform that allows companies to set up a blockchain lab in minutes. So effectively, what we are is Ethereum for enterprise. And right now, we have over 80 customers, including um, companies like John Hancock and Fidor Bank, and strategic partnerships with companies like Microsoft, Deloitte, Red Hat, and many others. And what we're looking for right now is we're looking for beta testers to test the latest version of our software. In addition, uh, we have several positions open at blockapps.net slash careers. Oh, wow. So there's all kinds of stuff going on. I, I had no idea you guys were looking to expand your team. Absolutely. I mean, honestly speaking, uh, with all the partnerships we have, we really have more demand than we can handle. And, and we're currently 17 people, but we, we could easily be 30 people tomorrow and still have more work to go around than we can handle right now. How quickly did this, this has happened really quickly. I had no idea you guys were that, uh, were that busy. Yeah, it, it's all happened. So I guess the start of it was back at DevCon in November. And, you know, we signed the first partnership with Microsoft then. But, you know, the entire blockchain market has really exploded. And really, when we talk about blockchain as a technology, what, what people don't know is that many companies have settled on Ethereum as sort of a de facto standard because you can do you know, pretty much any kind of use case you can imagine. So there's a great quote lately from Accenture that says, you know, every self-respecting innovation lab is running Ethereum. So we're seeing demand from all these companies who are looking for Ethereum-based solution. And you know, we're the most mature out there, having been around for a while now. So when did you actually found uh, block apps? Yeah, a really good question. Um, it was just a little over a year ago. It was, uh, well, the, the three founders, me, um, Jim Hermazdiar, and Kieran James Lubin, we, we got together around December 2014, roughly, December, November 2014. And we started playing around with you know the state of Ethereum then. And really, Jim, he took the initiative and he, he to really understand something, he really has to start coding it. So he created his own client, the Haskell implementation of Ethereum. 
And from there, we kind of built it out to make it really, really easy for normal developers to kind of jump into Ethereum. So what's the what's so special about the Haskell client? I mean, people talk about it being particularly reliable and stuff like that, but I mean, I've I have no idea. I'm not a coder, you know. Right. I I I think the the thing that's special, uh, not just about the Haskell client, but but it's the entire approach that Block Apps took to the market, which is uh, we basically decided we want to make things as easy for existing developers to get up and running as possible. So what that meant is that. We wanted dApps to, or we call them blockchain applications, to run on pretty much any device with a web browser. Uh, so we exposed like a RESTful API versus you know, um, the, the other solutions that were out there. The other thing is that we wanted it to feel as much like web development as possible. So we built a bunch of tools that made like you could write a contract and it would basically create out a bunch of web pages from that that you could run on any device. So that, that's one of the primary advantages. There are kind of scaling advantages also to the Haskell client in terms of speed. But you know, the main thing was our entire approach to say, okay, we want to reach out to the existing world of developers versus people who you know, want to start from scratch. That's a really pragmatic approach. So how's, how's the trip been? It must have been really amazing. Yeah, it's it's been well. You know, we started off doing this um, not really knowing where we were going to go as a business, and then we decided, you know, just last summer, just really start focusing on. You know, we had run a couple hackathons by that point, and we had shown that it was possible to, you know, develop blockchain applications really, really quickly. And so at that point, we had actually started to be approached by various companies who wanted to spin up a blockchain lab and kind of get up and running. And they were struggling with the existing tools out there. So that's kind of how we kind of focused on, you know, delivering Ethereum to the enterprise. Really, the enterprises came to us, and we just started providing our solutions to them. This is a, uh, this is a seller's market then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could say that. I mean, the, the, you know, I, I would say uh, there, there's been a recent survey um, a, from, a, for like CIOs for like five, Fortune 500 companies. And they said, you know, what are the most important technologies out there today? And there are two things that have popped up, and they were roughly tied. One is big data, and the other is blockchain. So, you know, and the other thing is that we're really getting approached. You know, I'm getting calls from Fortune 500 companies basically every day asking for my help to set up their environments. It sounds like quite a rock star operation you've got going on. Well, as they say, it's it's a good problem to have in the startup world, too much demand. But honestly, um, none of our team have taken a break in months. And, you know, we have a pretty amazing team. Um, Jim, uh, one of my co-founders, as I mentioned, in addition to having run several startups before, he's also the inventor of SSL VPN. So he really knows his stuff. And, you know, um, Kieran's pretty well known in the community. He ran the cryptocurrency research group before um, joining us to run block apps. Hey, fantastic. So you're after beta testers and potential uh, job applicants. That, that is exactly right. So we're looking for um, both you know, Haskell developers, but also people who can help on the website for our web tools. And we're also expanding into mobile very shortly. We've done some uh, preliminary proof of concepts, and we want to really build that out because there's a lot of demand for those mobile tools right now, too. Thank <laughs> you.
Ken, Gav, would you mind uh, introducing yourselves and explaining how you got involved in the Ethereum ecosystem? Hi, so uh, my name is Ken Kapler. Um, I was previously involved working for FDEV, um, often volunteering for a time uh, in the community space in London. Um, I worked as the technical communications director, helping people learn how to uh, build on top of Ethereum and how to uh, understand the system as a concept. Um, I've been with Ethcore since the beginning, so September of last year, and I've been interested in blockchain technology since around 2013. And hi, my name is Gavin Wood. I'm the, uh, I'm the CEO of Ethcore, and I'm previously the CTO of the Ethereum uh, Foundation, one of the original founders of Ethereum. And uh, I did the uh, co-design the protocol with Alec and did the formal specification uh, known as the yellow paper. Um, I worked with uh, Vitalik and Jeff in the early days in order to deliver the first uh, working implementation. From the Vitalik's initial white paper um, idea to the, to the network that we know and love today. Gavin, what is Web3 and how does it relate to what you guys are doing at Ethcore? Um, so Web3 is the, uh, the notion of a, a new way of doing web apps. Currently, web apps are very much based around a client-server model where all of the user data is really stored on the server and the server is assumed to be very much um, central in how users of these applications interact with each other. So to take the example of Facebook, Facebook servers sit there and relay all of the messages that go between uh, people on Facebook from, the, from the, the, every single like, every photo that's shared, Every, uh, every line of every little text message that users send between each other from their mobile phones. And Web3 is really fundamentally trying to pull apart that model and make the clients really first-class citizens um, within, their, um, within the architecture of these systems so that they can get by and talk to each other directly without having to go through uh, particular servers and in doing so inevitably deposit very valuable information on there and potentially also open themselves up to an awful lot of attack. This is the same kind of disintermediation that people refer to with finance and, and things like that, but applied to uh, applied to information systems, right? That's it. It's pretty much just applied to what the, the normal systems that we use day-to-day -day life on, on the web. Yeah. And so how does this, how does Ethcore intend to, uh, to get involved in this paradigm? Um, well, we really see ourselves as a, as a core technology company. We want to sort of help build this, uh, this stack, this, uh, this technology set um, from the ground up. And so that's, that's really where, um, where parity comes in. Um, but we, we kind of view a very holistic approach. So we want to begin at the bottom and, and slowly kind of work our, way, uh, work our way up. You mentioned parity. What is, uh, can you explain parity and what the imperative behind uh, building it was? Um, so Parity is a, an implementation of the Ethereum protocol. It's much, uh, in, in many respects, it's, it serves as a feature Parity version of, uh, of, of ETH and GET, which some, some of the listeners might be aware of. It's a little different, partly because it's, it's coded in a very uh, low-level language, Rust. It, it's really designed with security, resilience and reliability, and of course efficiency in mind. But that said, it does pretty much the same sort of jobs that you expect um, each of those other clients to do. 
And so, what is the uh, what is the market uh, the market niche that that hopes to that that parity is aimed at? The the initial market is definitely one of, of IoT. Uh, Rust is is an excellent um, language for doing really uh, uh, low footprint programs, but we we view it really as that's that's the sort of opening and, and really pushing out into the desktop and potentially on mobile phones. As we uh, as we start introducing light client technologies, really to uh, to to make the whole Ethereum experience that much that much better. So, Ken, what kind of business opportunities do you see uh, using Parity and um, and some of these new technologies that you guys are developing? Um, so, we've been operating for about six months now, and um, this has actually been a pretty extended period of trying to do you know, product market fit. Everywhere we see these very strong indicators of like a latent market need for this technology from organizations. I know you just mentioned the banks. Um, these guys are looking very hard at this, but they, they don't know what to make of it. So at the moment, we're, we're kind of erring on the side of caution in terms of how we engage in these processes because we don't know what's going to happen in the next 6 to 12 months. We don't know what's going to happen in the next 12 to 24 months. It could be that this... Uh, this sudden interest in the technology um, actually takes a very, very much of a, a longer time than most people expect to, to result in you know, actual business use cases. So for Parity, we're building essentially core technology. Uh, we're making it available open source, uh, and we're hoping to drive adoption organically without necessarily uh, you know, trying to fit our product to a market that hasn't really decided what it wants from this technology at the moment. So what you're so what you're saying is that really there's the the strategy is not to try to find a niche so much as as it is to position yourself to have a shot at whatever uh, whatever opportunities emerge in the future. I think that's I think that's our, our strategy. Yes, and and providing you know, tools and platform for users to uh, you know, users to get get online and use Ethereum. When uh, when you say users get online and use Ethereum, what do you see users use people using it for right now? Um, well, the first steps are getting online, right? We're seeing stuff from consensus labs. Um, we're seeing independent projects building things. But at the moment, the, um, the clients that are available simply aren't, haven't been developed uh, to enable people to use stamps. Um, and this is, this is really what we want to, this is where we want to position Parity as being the client that um, allows people to access the, yeah, the full features of the Ethereum network rather than just the, the very basic ones of transferring Ether. Maybe if you're you know, a particularly competent technical type person interacting with things like the DAO, um, we want to make it open to everyone. I'm glad you brought up the DAO, Ken. Gavin, what are your, what's your take on the DAO? I know that you recently w- withdrew your, your public position as a, uh, as a curator. What, what is your take on it? Um, I think it's a uh, very interesting social experiment. I think it's um, uh, DAOs in general are probably going to be very important structures for us to um, uh, to research, to understand what the social dynamics are with interhuman operation based purely upon code. I think uh, I, I, I was very surprised at uh, how large the, um, uh, the pool of Ether within the DAO grew. I think I'm not the only one. I find it both exciting and worrying that uh, th- this code is, is essentially untested and it's holding quite so much um, apparent value. And I think uh, 
yeah, I, I think it really is a very large, a large gamble on something which really is very much um, experimental. So it's it's the untested nature of it. I mean, do you see this as a uh, as a vi- as a potentially viable business model? Well, I mean, the the DAO isn't isn't really pushed as being necessarily a, a business uh, itself. It, it's really more um, at being advertised by its by its backers as a as essentially a crypto VC fund, whereby any of the uh, proposals are like as they're called, or you know, essentially um, essentially minor organizations or efforts must have a viable means of returning. Uh, value back to the DAO. Um, so in that sense, it's not really a DAO, but more of a DAC, De- uh, Decentralized Autonomous uh, Corporation. I'm sure that the, there will be viable business models uh, sort of produced by proposals, but I'm also equally sure that many of the proposals will not have any reasonable, credible way of uh, delivering value back into the DAO and will probably try and treat it more or less as a sort of a grant scheme, um, and I think that um, I, I think it would be very interesting to see how the uh, the backers of the DAO, the the, uh, the token holders, treat these these proposals with uh, probably quite meager credentials and credibility as to how they're going to deliver uh, those profits that the um, that the the DAO promoters um, uh, saw fit to advertise on their website. So I've got a question for both you guys, and that is, do you see Slockets? DAO proposal, as if, if you've looked at it, as being able to outperform Ether. Well, I mean, I would I would point out that Ether is a um, uh, is a token for uh, for paying for decentralized compute services. So it's really not something that I, I think anyone should be looking for returns on. Now the DAO is a bit different. The DAO is actually marketed as being something that will be profitable. And as to whether the profits coming from that DAO token are likely to outperform the uh, the, the value rise of Ether, as perhaps more people um, um, use the network and that, that compute resource becomes increasingly scarce, um, is difficult to say. I haven't yet seen um, a proposal that I would consider as being a sort of absolutely jaw-dropping, credible way of delivering sort of real tangible value that you might otherwise see sensible VCs backing um, as yet submitted to the DAO. But of course, it's early days. Uh, the DAO hasn't yet finished its raise. And I think we're going to see an awful lot more proposals in the coming weeks. So to add to that, I think the question isn't whether or not um, Slocket's proposal can deliver greater revenues than, than just holding Ether and speculating on the price of Ether might return in, say, the next 18 to 24 months. Because... It's, it's about whether or not people want to, to backslock it. You know, for many people, this investment is, is more about an ideological thing. It's about a, doing a desirable thing. They're consuming their products when they buy into the DAO. They're, they're engaging in investment as, a, um, as an activity that they enjoy. Um, so I think stock, it doesn't need to beat the price of, oh, it doesn't need to beat the, beat the uh, increase in price of Ether if that happens. Um, it simply needs to, uh, you know, offer something that entices people to invest or, or to, to contract Slocket to build the universal sharing network. It seems all a bit weird. Like you were just talking about uh, getting involved in the Internet of Things as well, which kind of puts you guys in, uh, in kind of competition with Slocket, doesn't it? Well, I mean, we're very much more um, uh, uh, 
sort of lower down on the stack, as it were, slot gets um, probably pushing it more into the application layer. Um, so far, we've, uh, we've you know had a very good relationship with Slocket, and we certainly hope that uh, as time goes on, we'll find uh, a really kind of good symbiotic relationship with them. In principle, uh, I guess uh, you know IoT is 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 as yet an untested market, but I think all signs are very much that IoT is going to become very important in the not too distant future, and that blockchain is likely to play a substantial part in that. And really, from Ethcor's point of view, we just want to be a facilitator to make sure that the software is there um, should the market develop. Yeah, I mean, Socket aren't building their own client. Um, they're looking for yeah, they're looking for software solutions that, that fit what they're building in the hardware department. So yeah, we we are very we have a good, very good working relationship with Socket. Fantastic. So, is there uh, potentially a partnership in the works then? Well, I mean, you can't speculate on uh, on anything like that, but. Um, I think it's uh, communication lines are certainly open, so we'll see. How do you guys see this space evolving as we move forward? Gav, you've been with uh, at the absolute centre of Ether for so of Ethereum for so long. Um, I think that's a very interesting question. It's uh, it's difficult to say. We've certainly seen some uh, decentralisation within the Ethereum ecosystem uh, over the last year or so, with uh, Ethcor spinning off, of course, consensus. Um, spinning up and, um, and, and really populating um, a, a large portion of the DAP ecosystem. Uh, we've seen many, um, uh, many independent outfits come along. Uh, we've seen Maker, Digix, and now Slocket um, uh, sort of push out into the DAO space. Um, we've seen um, an awful lot of, uh, of, of smaller sort of operations um, come along and really do very important work. Example there would be uh, what they call uh, Oracleize. Indeed. Um, so I, I think I think as time goes on, we're probably going to see probably a little consolidation, but I think we're also going to see a lot of uh, people move uh, maybe from the Bitcoin ecosystem and start looking into into Ethereum as an alternative um, ecosystem in which to deploy their products and services. So I think it's gonna it's gonna really be a, a quite a mixed bag, but the melting pot. I doubt we're going to see the days where everything is contained in a single organization uh, come back anytime soon how do you envision the uh the future interoperation of the bitcoin and ethereum ecosystems as as they evolve i think this is largely going to depend on how the bitcoin ecosystem develops um at the moment it seems to me as a uh, as a very casual observer uh, that it has stalled to some degree i see a lot of um what once were very much Bitcoin um, focused um, services and, and shops kind of starting to, uh, to look out of the window and maybe wonder maybe uh, Ethereum is worth uh, having a foot in. I suspect that if Bitcoin manages really to, to push itself uh, forward again and, and sort of propel its, uh, a bit more new technology um, under its wings, then there may be... Um, there may be some interesting kind of uh, tie-ins that would be possible, especially if side chains sort of, sort of come along and become a viable um, piece of technology for Bitcoin. But right now, it, it really does seem like the wind is is behind Ethereum, and uh, in that sense, it, it may just be that Ethereum, in some sense, kind of takes over from Bitcoin as being the um, the main mover. Um, in the uh, in, in the sort of blockchain cryptocurrency ecosystem, side chains. I don't want to get too too distracted on side chains, but um, do they even really like? Is that a thing? 
<laughs> is it a thing? Um, well, it's not a thing yet. My uh, my appraisal of the white paper is uh, that it, it's rather a deeply flawed way of, of, of managing what is essentially additional functionality in, into Bitcoin, sort of a plug-in system. The flaw is largely is a bit subtle, um, but it, it comes down to the fact that the state transitions in the uh, in the side chains cannot be checked by the main Bitcoin chain, and so in principle, a uh, the security of the side chain is largely going to be down to uh, the side chain alone. It can't it can't riff off the main Bitcoin chain security, um, at least not in any in any sort of real deep uh, meaning of the word security. And the way that it does at the moment is simply uh, is simply a, a confirmations on the side chain, which uh, a number of which are required to unlock um, uh, bitcoins on the main chain that would otherwise be um, be assumed to be uh, uh, in use on the side chain. I think um, I'll be interested to see if the Bitcoin core developers actually manage to to a uh, get that deployed into the into the main network, especially when some of the existing features don't seem to be widely um, used by the miners even as it stands. Um, and secondly, whether they address any of these security issues or whether they just sort of uh, brush over them and, and, and hope that, uh, that nobody notices. That said, uh, if they can make it work in, in, some, um, in some reasonable way, it's, uh, I, I think it, it would sort of add a bit of a lease of life to the Bitcoin ecosystem. But that said, um, sidechains actually would work awfully well on Ethereum. Uh, Ethereum being true and complete means you can effectively validate any state transitions of any sidechain on Ethereum uh, with the actual power of the, the security underlying the main <laughs> Ethereum network. Um, so I'd be, uh, you know, and this is something Ethcore may end up pursuing, uh, very interested in, uh, in looking into sidechains on the Ethereum network. Moving along from that then. Gavin, would you mind sharing your view on the security issues recent that have recently surfaced with the Geth client? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's uh, you know it belies a uh, unthought through attitude to uh, uh, to key management on the side of the Go team. the uh, The notion of account unlocking is is pretty flawed uh, in general. Although it's you know something you expect in probably development versions. It's not really something that ever should have made its way into software that's managing, um, you know, well, over a billion US uh, dollars. So um, I think it's, it really demonstrates the need for the, uh, for the foundation to, uh, to maybe place a bit, more, uh, a bit more of a serious uh, attitude towards security. But as, uh, you know, within Ethcore, it's something that we'll be addressing uh, pretty soon with our next release where we'll be uh, essentially disabling all of these unsafe APIs, uh, partly uh, where they are enabled fixing them so that the same attacks cannot, um, cannot happen. In fact, attacks very, uh, even at all like them cannot happen. Can you explain what the attack, what the exact attack was? Um, well, do you want to go into it? Uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not as a technical person, but um, essentially the, the, the circumstances of the attack were quite contrived. So the user who had... Um, lost, I think it was around $85,000 worth of Ether, had created a, a set of circumstances which most users would never um, experience. This caused, basically for his, uh, his uh, RPC to be exposed to um, uh, an external um, port and allowed an attacker to just spam it constantly with transaction requests. So the moment he unlocked his account by sending a transaction using MIST, 
that attacker was able to uh, drain uh, all of his ether. Now, um, I think the Go team rightly points out that this was uh, somebody was using um, Geth in a in a manner not recommended by the manufacturer, which uh, is you know, always a bad idea. But I still think that the uh, no matter how contrived the, the circumstances that the attack vector occurred under, we definitely need to address some of the some of the the obviously um, deficient elements of key management and also transaction signing. There certainly wasn't um, a focus on this during development. It was yeah, it was always going to have to develop and change and evolve um, simply because we hadn't really figured out how people were going to be using Ethereum yet. Um, and yeah, we're definitely working on that over here. Uh, I'm sure Jeff's team is as well. So. I mean, um, I think, uh, you know, for, for those of us that have maybe been around since some of the, uh, the earlier days, it does take a little, um, a little bit of time for, for it to sink in that this, this code you've been working on is now actually handling uh, sort of day-to-day tens, hundreds, thousands, you know, millions of dollars of, uh, of random people's money. It, it, you know, a, a certain amount of sensitivity has to, uh, really has to take hold. And that's why uh, that's really why we kind of push things out to the community, get book bounties on the on the go, and get um, external auditors to take a look at stuff. So, what's how's this experience been for you? Uh, for you, Gav? I mean, you've been doing this for I mean, you've been with Ethereum since the very start. You've seen uh, you worked at the Ethereum. You were one of the founding members of the Ethereum Foundation. How how has your experience of working on Ethereum been? Exhilarating, thrilling. It's, uh, it's, it's been a great ride. Uh, it continues to be a great ride. It's really the, the sort of Web3 vision of, uh, you know, in, in which the middle really is, uh, really is Ethereum that's, uh, that's always kept me going throughout. It's, um, I think it's uh, decentralizing the world and really trying to break down barriers, break down, which, which personally I see technological barriers masquerading now as social barriers. Um, these servers that sit between us and kind of, uh, check what, what we are and aren't uh, saying to each other and then kind of authenticate that, that, that I am who I say I am. This all seems very, um, very uh, wrong way, wrong headed. And uh, really just kind of trying to fix that situation is, um, is really what drives me to, to keep going. So speaking of Web3, there originally were three components to it. There was the EVM, the uh, Whisper, and swarm right so the evm being uh being the trust engine swarm being the storage and peer-to-peer networking layer and then and then whisper as the un- non-archived messaging messaging system how are those uh how are those interrelated in the web3 vision uh, so swarm is effectively the data publishing service that, that works within the web3 model it's the protocol that delivers all of the static content. So static content is basically the sorts of stuff that doesn't change once it's been published. So we can imagine a blog, for example, is not static content, whereas the background image for a, for a web page is because the blog actually changes in terms of in terms of its content. People add posts, maybe remove them, whereas the, the background image of a particular web page doesn't change. It stays exactly as it does in general. Uh, from the point that it's published to the point that it's taken down. What makes Swarm specifically good for that function and not for hosting the blog content itself? So Swarm's not designed for hosting anything that actually changes. The idea behind it is it essentially allows you to provide a 
self-identifying address. Uh, so we call these self-identifying addresses uh, hashes. And the this hash uh, would be a, an effect, effectively shortened form, uh, very much shortened form, of the content that it represents. And you'd always know that you have the right content because you could always uh, deterministically, algorithmically change the content back into the hash and check to make sure that it's the same. Whereas, obviously, if the content is changing, there's no way that you could possibly change that those many different uh, possible contents back into the same original address. Could uh, could Swarm be used, say, for example, to store parts of the Ethereum blockchain? I mean, does it have that uh, that ability to? Does it have that that kind of security and consistency? In principle, um, yes, absolutely. Uh, now, it, it would it would really come down to the performance characteristics. Um, now, there are many sort of uh, potential, let's say, implementations of this notional swarm. Uh, there's the uh, first and foremost, the one that the uh, foundation is working on at the moment. There is also uh, another potential contender, IPFS, uh, which fulfills many of the same criteria. Um, and then in, in principle, uh, uh, systems like BitTorrent provide very similar kind of service, uh, but they all have different kind of performance criteria. They work better for maybe um, larger or smaller content. They provide maybe lower or higher latency or, uh, and, and in the case of the foundation's efforts, uh, it has sort of this idea of being of incentivizing the people who are sharing the material that you need. Uh, so really, there's a lot of trade-offs to consider. Now, I know that IPFS are working on something called uh, Filecoin, or at least it's 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 uh, an idea that seems to be floating out there, um, and that that's an incentive layer for for that storage system, isn't it? That's right. Yes. So what differentiates uh, Swarm and IPFS, say, with Filecoin? So I, I must say I don't know all that much about Filecoin in detail, but my understanding, you know, the sort of perhaps most obvious differences are that uh, with Swarm, the incentivization layer would be uh, fairly uh, tightly tied to the Ethereum network and would likely use some kind of payment channel or micropayment architecture in order to uh, facilitate that, so that kind of uh, uh, those level of payments uh, or reputation or however it's structured to uh, facilitate incentivization. Whereas with IPFS and Filecoin, uh, my understanding is that Filecoin is a much more uh, sort of lightweight uh, protocol in terms of transactions. So the idea is that you can actually have uh, sufficiently many transactions, so really, really sort of tidal frequency of transactions uh, that you don't need to sort of um, uh, go on to sort of different architectures and different ways of solving it. You can kind of solve it directly from the, uh, on the, on the main first-class citizen transaction layer of the blockchain. Wow. So this is two very different, uh, these are two very different approaches. One seems to be uh, designed around the backbone of the backbone of the Ethereum blockchain, and then the other one, uh, uh, Filecoin, is a much more general purpose approach. Yeah, I, I would say like Filecoin is, is almost like a custom-designed blockchain in order to manage the sorts of transactions, the sorts of frequencies of transactions uh, that you need in order to incentivize file sharing. In comparison, Swarm sort of piggybacks to a large degree on the Ethereum protocol. Part of the reason that this interests me uh, specifically is because the old model of everyone holding a copy of the 
Ethereum blockchain or, or, or of any blockchain, it, I feel like if we could, if there was some way for uh, data to be stored in a massively redundant and reliable fashion, maybe that could be a, uh, a scaling solution of some kind. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, um, so there's a couple of things to, to note. Firstly, the, the scaling solution comes down to more than just storing an awful lot of data, processing the data, making sure that all of the nodes of the network don't actually need to process all of the transactions is, uh, is probably the, the sort of harder problem. But on top of that, uh, it's also, uh, there's this issue that we call um, um, proof of availability. And what this basically means is that you can't, you can't sort of uh, make a, make a block or do some sort of consensus hard um, uh, decision with the assumption that uh, some data is available uh, that might later not be available. So uh, the, this kind of falls into to, to, to this discussion in that suppose you use something like Swarm to store all the blocks and you don't require every node to actually store every then you run into the problem of, well, what happens if none of the nodes that happen to be storing this particular block that you need in order to in order to check the blockchain are available at the time that you actually want to sync up? Now you're left with a problem. You either sort of take it on trust that, that this block sort of did exist once and will exist in the future and kind of carry on regardless and don't, don't allow yourself to check the transactions therein. Um, or you sort of stop right there, and, and then, you, of course, you can't sync up properly. So uh, it, it becomes, uh, you run into these kind of difficulties, and it has to be handled very sensitively, basically. Okay, so it's just, uh, it's just a matter of, um, of availability and, uh, and security, then? That's it. So, I mean, availability isn't a massive issue with current blockchain architectures, because, as you say, every node stores every block. And so if you can find one node to sync from, then you'll necessarily get all of the blocks. Now, when it's the case that in principle, you can sync from a node, but you don't necessarily know that the blocks that it's saying it has or saying it has checked are actually available, then you run into the difficulty of not being able to actually prove them. Um, so Whisper's development has largely halted since... Uh, since late last year. The, uh, it's something that we intend to continue probably later on this year when, we, when we've reached our, uh, our critical milestones for parity. It's, yeah, so Whisper's, Whisper's like a hybrid messaging system and DHT, a distributed hash table. What this allows is for you to do um, all sorts of uh, nice message um, kind of data communication mechanisms and patterns that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Publi uh, publishing, subscription, that, that's looked after very easily. Um, and the whole thing works around the notion of topics. So messages can have a bunch of topics, kind of similar to having subject lines in emails or hashtags in Twitter messages. And you can search by topics. And in general, these messages float around the network and eventually kind of make their way to where they're, to where they're, uh, where they're wanted. The nice thing about uh, Whisper and one thing that sort of just, uh, kind of uh, delineates it from, from other messaging systems is that there's, there's no notion of, of endpoints for messages. So it's not that a message goes from one person's computer to another person's computer, but rather the message kind of gets, uh, get, gets sort of let go into the ether, as it were, and floats around. Anyone who's interested can pick the message out of the ether and if they have the key to decode it, then they can actually they can understand the message. But otherwise, it's just scrambled text, and no one really uh, no one really knows what it's saying. 
And what this does is it means that you, you not only can, can, uh, can not snoop on a private conversation, uh, but you can also not tell who is actually um, who's conversing with who. And that's, I think, uh, this, this sort of metadata protection is something that's going to become increasingly important um, as time goes on. I think it's something that we've already seen is very, um, uh, is, is very uh, interesting to, um, to, to the government and, and, and so on who are, uh, who are sort of being able to, um, uh, to pick up this and, and, uh, and analyze it. Uh, so yeah, so that's 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 Whisper. Now the three fit together in in, in so much as they um, they each they each provide a piece of the puzzle. Um, and if if the three sort of notional services are taken together, um, then you can you can I, I theorize at least <laughs> build pretty much any uh, massively multi-user web application if you like. So if you want to build the next Facebook or the next eBay or the next Twitter or the next Bitcoin or the next BitTorrent, then you can use these uh, these three components and put them together in some way and you'll be able to do it. And so they really come together under this notion of, of the Web3 JavaScript framework, whereby JavaScript is actually the language that you use in order to uh, to combine these uh, these components in your um, in your decentralized application. So the idea is essentially to rebuild the web that we currently have using these tools uh, into a kind of a serverless architecture. Exactly, yes. So where can people find out more about about Ethcore, Parity, and uh, and some of these other things we've discussed today? Uh, just head to our website, uh, www.ethcore.io. Um, we have a blog, we have forums, uh, and we have to post red, uh, very regularly on Twitter. Thank you, Gavin, Ken, and also Victor. This has been the Ether Review. Visit etherreview.info for more episodes, email contact at etherreview.info or follow us on Twitter at etherreview.